Pelvic Rehab Research Podcast. My name is Becca Bissadolshensky, and I'll be your host guiding you as we take a deep dive into all things pelvic floor and research-based. Whether you're a pelvic newbie or a seasoned clinician, I'm here to help busy therapists listen through the Women's Health Study Guide. So if you're studying for the Women's Certified Specialist Exam or just interested in learning more about pelvic health research, we've got you covered. Welcome back to an article by Christopher McGrath on the palpation of the SIJ, an anatomical and sensory challenge. So the goal of this article was to highlight anatomical and sensory difficulties that may be associated with the use of diagnostic palpation. Also, to promote wider critical consideration for the continuing role of diagnostic palpation as a tactile tradition in manual health care and to speculate that a technological answer may provide a more reliable and valid alternative. So palpation is a widely used diagnostic adjunct in medicine, but it's also recognized that diagnostic medical palpation is pretty limited by moderate sensitivity and specificity. Focusing critical attention on the anatomical challenge that confronts diagnostic palpation highlights the potential impact of this confounding variable. So is what is thought being palpated actually being palpated? There's been some wide variations in the size, shape, contour, and location of that SIJ that has been reported. And this isn't even just between different individuals, but also between left and right sides of the same individual. So the skin is the most superficial structure that overlies that SIJ and provides the immediate tactile input to the examiner. Below that is gonna be the subcutaneous adipose layer, skin ligaments, the lumbosacrofascial, erector spinae, aponeurosis, and the multifidus. So beneath all of those structures, then we're gonna find ourselves at the posterior foramen of the S2, and the SIJ lies a little lateral and close to the S2 posterior sacral foramen between five to seven centimeters beneath the skin. So big picture, in order to palpate that SIJ structure, the examiner would have to be able to palpate through a number of different structures beginning with the skin, some three to four millimeters thick at this level. And just for clarity, I'm gonna review that one more time, just the different layers. So there's seven discrete anatomical layers of different composition overlying the superior and the middle aspects of the SIJ. So we're gonna list those layers in order of encountered from the surface. That's gonna start with the skin, the adipose tissue, the lumbosacral fascia, the erector spinae aponeurosis, the multifidus, the ligamentous layer, the white adipose layer, and then the sacroiliac interosseous ligaments. Here's a few discussion thoughts that are gonna serve as our take-home points on reasons behind why many individuals argue over the difficulties in reliably assessing these joints. One, it's the overlying skin that's physically palpated the depth of the joint makes it almost inaccessible to direct palpation. Two, the superior and the mid portion of that posterior SIJ is an anatomically ill-defined structure of variably blended SIJ ligaments, as well as tissue and fibrocartilage. So think of some of those celebrity ligaments that we talked about before, like the long dorsal ligament. Three, when thinking about discrimination of pain, palpation of this region has the capacity to elicit pain from a number of different sources other than that SIJ. So that reliability of palpating this region and zeroing in on one pain location is definitely gonna be in question. SIJ assessments are something that many providers have done, do, and will continue to do regardless of the evidence. There's no 
current clinical evidence to support the reliability of SIJ palpatory assessments per this article. So next up, we're actually going to go on to our next article by Menz et al. on the validity of the active straight leg raise test for measuring disease severity in patients with posterior pelvic pain after pregnancy. And this was authored by A. Menz, M. Jan, who is an MD, Andrew Vleeming, who is a PhD, Chris Singers, who is PhD, Bart Coe's PhD, and J. Hank Stam, who is an MD and a PhD. So this article is only able to gain access to the abstract, so we're just going to do a brief abstract synopsis on that. The title is basically the objective. They want to know if the active straight leg raise can be used as a severity index for patients with that posterior pelvic pain after pregnancy. The study design was a cross-sectional analysis with a group of women. They took a look at that active SLR as well as the common severity measurement scales of lumbopelvic pain. So let's talk methods. The investigation was performed with 200 women who had posterior pelvic pain after pregnancy. The validity of the active SLR test as a severity scale was investigated by comparing the test score with the medical history, scores on self-reported disability scales, pain and tiredness, and pain provocation tests. The usefulness of the active straight leg raise test as a severity scale was compared to that of the Quebec back pain disability scale. For results, the active straight leg raise score ranged from 0 to 10 and correlated as expected with all severity scales. The correlation between the scores on the active straight leg raise test and the Quebec back pain disability scale was 0.7. No association was found between the active straight leg raise score and age, parity, duration of postpartum period, height, or weight. So what's the conclusion and the lone take-home point here? The active SLR test can be recommended as a disease severity scale for patients with posterior pelvic pain after pregnancy. So performing that active SLR for your postpartum posterior pelvic pain patient may be close to as effective in getting an idea of the severity of your patient's pain if you're not utilizing outcome measures, which for some of you who are in different um, hospital systems, you might not be using outcome measures. Just a quick aside for those of you who don't or haven't used the Quebec Back Pain Disability Scales, I want to go over it. It's really short. It's about 20 activities that can be put into about six categories. It's often shortened to be called the QBPDS. So those categories are going to include bed or rest items, sitting or standing items, ambulation items, movement items, bending over or stooping items, and handling of large or heavy object items. The scale exists of one central question, which is, do you have trouble today with? And it's measured by using one of those Likert scales from zero to five, zero being no effort and five being unable to do so. While this isn't the best questionnaire, it does have a grade recommendation at B and it's compared to the Roland Morris and the Oswestry Disability Index. So like I said, for those of you who are maybe working in larger systems that insurance is not as much of a factor, like say a cash pay clinic, a VA, a Kaiser, or another government entity, just a thought if you don't utilize outcome measures as often, um, just to go over them. Even if you're just someone who uses the same one over and over, I'm looking at you, patient-specific functional scale person. Um, I love that outcome measure myself, but you can start to forget what the other lumbar, pelvic, shoulder, etc. outcome measures look like or even named. So just as a reminder, um, review those. 
Okay, so that's going to be it for those two articles. Next up, we're on to Morkved 2003 on pelvic floor muscle training during pregnancy to prevent urinary incontinence. And this is a single blinded RCT. So if you weren't already, now you can get excited. (laughs) As always, thank you for listening. And I hope to see you all listening at our next one. Bye, everyone.